Thanks for that uh, communion message, Jeremy. I really appreciate that. Sin is a monster. Independence from that is our real Independence Day. Of course, Jeremy's referring to the fact that on Tuesday, we're going to celebrate our country's Independence Day. We're celebrating the signing of a document. Starts like this. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal status which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect for the opinions of mankind require that they should declare the causes which impel them to that separation." We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We know that preamble, many, many arguments have started discussing various aspects of that. It goes on for some time, listing the grievances that those colonies had against the government of England and their reasons for separation from it. And the War of Independence followed after, and we are a nation uh, because of those events. That's what we're celebrating on Tuesday. You don't have to think about any of that, just eat your hot dog, but that's what that's all about. One of the arguments that goes on about this preamble is, was this a Christian nation that declared independence from England? And if you think there's a yes or no answer to that question, you just haven't looked at the details, in my opinion. Some questions aren't yes or no, because the details are so gnarly. Was the government and the elites and the university or the colleges that existed, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, were they Christian? Yeah, they were. Just like the colleges in England that they were rebelling against were Christian. Oxford and Cambridge. And the elites in those countries were Christian. Were the nations Christian? Rodney Stark, who's a statistics-based historian, says, it looks like, with the best numbers that we can calculate, only about 17% of the American colonies at the time of the signing uh, were part of churches. Now, there's all kinds of uh, questions that can be asked about his statistics, but that's his analysis, and he's pretty careful about going back and actually checking the real statistics that are available. So what do you say about that? Was America a Christian nation at the time? It mentions God in the preamble to its Declaration of Independence. Twice. Or was it not? My diagnosis is this, England and the English culture 
had made Christianity into a religion of the middle class and upper class. It was no longer very attractive to ordinary people. You had to kind of be vaguely Christian if you wanted to move around in the corridors of power. You had to pretend to be Christian whether you really believed it or not, if you wanted to run for political office or hold positions in the universities. That was true in England. That was true in the colonies. But nobody much was bothering to reach out to the bulk of the population. So I don't think it was a very pious country. But an amazing thing happened. These colonies were, their leadership was divided. One group was actually Baptist, strangely enough. That's almost never happened. Another group, several groups were Presbyterian or Congregationalist. One group was Quaker. There was no way those colonies could say this will be our national church, like England could say, Anglicanism is our national church. It couldn't do it. And so when it comes time to articulate the Bill of Rights that append to the Constitution, they say something that really had never been said in print before. Congress will not make an established religion. I think all the countries in the world, in, uh, in, in, at least those in Western Europe, thought this is an atheist nation being established. It has no church. It has no explicit connection to any form of Christianity. It's an atheist nation. Don't make an established church. Now, I think from our perspective, we can look back and say the record of the established church in Western Europe was pretty poor. Church attendance in England was pretty low. It was about the same as it was in those colonies, thanks to the established church. It was pretty low in France. It was pretty low in Germany, thanks to the established church. Three decades later, a Frenchman comes over, and he comments on that. His name is de Tocqueville. And he's, he's trying to explain this new country, America, to his fellow Frenchmen and, the, and fellow Europeans. And he says, it is really a weird place, to summarize his whole book. It's a weird place. It's really different than Europe. It's not just the geography that's different. What's different about this place is how so many people care about and talk about, I mean, they talk about it amongst themselves, the doctrines of Christianity. A lot of times it's in the form of fighting with each other, but still, they talk about it. And what he was commenting on is what 
people now look back on and realize between the time of the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the time de Tocqueville starts observing the 1820s, you have this enormous explosion of Christian adherence in this country. Now, it was wild and woolly. A third of that explosion west of the Alleghenies, by the way, is restoration movement you know, that uh, Alexander Campbell and Martin W. Stone and those guys that some of you know about. This explosion of interest in God and thinking about the Bible and wondering how I be a Christian and how I get close to Christ. To this day, sociologists consider the United States a weird country religiously because we are technologically advanced, we are uh, economically advanced, uh, we are scientifically advanced, and yet we are abnormally adherent to Christianity for, compared to the other technologically and economically advanced countries in the world. Now, I don't know why that happened. But I suspect God had something to do with it. I don't think you or I could have planned a strategy that would have accomplished what God accomplished in this country. My conviction is, and this is just me, I don't have any Bible to back this up, this is just my opinion. My conviction is God was active in turning people on, ordinary people, to Scripture in a way that those staid, monopolistic churches could not do by setting the church free. That's the reason why the United States had a different and much more vibrant Christian trajectory and continues to do so. I think God in his providence does things like that. And the reason why I wanted to tell that rather long story is not to spoil you eating your hot dog on the 4th of July. When you enjoy your 4th of July celebration, I want you, when you're watching the fireworks go up, to also ask yourself this question. I wonder what God will do next. You look around at our country and you can have this opinion or you can have that opinion. You can decide we're like this or we're like that relative to Christianity. Don't count out God. Ask yourself the question, I wonder what God is going to do. What's he going to do next? That's not really what my sermon's about, but I... But that was on my heart this morning, and I wanted to talk to you about it. What my sermon's about is kind of what Jeremy's talk was about. It's about something magnificent that happens when you and I are baptized. 
And we watch baptisms happen, and we're always happy when baptisms take place. And baptism is a piece of fundamental doctrine for those of us who are part of the churches of Christ. It's very important to us to teach what the Bible says about baptism, and I'm glad that it is. But I want to make sure we understand this part of what the Bible says about baptism. This sermon series, this whole series is about explicit promises in Scripture where God says in one way or another, when this happens, I will be with you. And this may be the biggest one in terms of its stretch, its reach. God says, from the moment you are baptized, I am with you in a way I have not been before. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Way back in Ezekiel chapter 36, and Ezekiel's already talked about this earlier in chapter 11, he complains that the people, they aren't responsive to God, they have a heart of stone, and God says, I want to come and take that heart of stone out of you, and I want to give you a heart of flesh. And he comes back to that theme here in Ezekiel 36. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and I will make you clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you to move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God has always been planning to put his spirit in his people. Of course, in the Old Testament, mostly the spirit comes on people to do specific tasks. It comes on the prophets in order to enable them to speak forth the word of God. It comes on the judges in order to allow them to win victories and to accomplish great things. God's Spirit can't be directly in contact with God's people. That's what the blood and the veils and the sacrifices and the priests are all about, to keep God away from God's people. But God says, this distance between us, I want to close that space. I want to be with you. And there's coming a time when my Spirit will be directly in all of you. Peter on the day of Pentecost quotes another passage like that, the Joel 2 passage. It says, in the last days, that's the plan. My spirit coming on you. I want to be in you. Ezekiel's emphasis is the power of the spirit, the effect of the spirit, the primary thing that the Holy Spirit does is help you be holy. Kind of logical when you think about it. The Holy Spirit moves you to be a holy person. And God says, I want my spirit in you. And God always has had this plan to put this spirit in his people. The Gospels and the book of Acts tell us the story of how that happened. Jesus makes it possible for the Holy Spirit to be in each one of us. 
Mark 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it tells some things about John. And then down in verse 7, it continues that. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This one that's coming, what's going to be significant about him is he brings the Holy Spirit. They would have said, oh, like Joel talked about? Like Ezekiel talked about? Is that what you mean? Acts 2. Doug read the whole passage to us this morning. Skip down to verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. Peter concludes his sermon. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. I don't know what the audience looked like. I don't know if they were looking at each other. I don't know if they were holding their hands up to their faces. We do know what they said. We know that this hurt them. Because it says when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They knew that they had just been convicted of about the worst crime that could possibly happen, that you could possibly commit. That Peter had just said, all these decades and years we've been waiting for God's anointed one to come. Jesus was that anointed one, and you helped the Romans kill him. What should we do about that? Are we just doomed? Goes from the worst possible news to the best possible news because here's what Peter says. Repent. Here's what you can do about it. Change your life. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, for your children, and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Peter says, the moment has come. You've seen the Holy Spirit fall on us. God gave you the gift of actually seeing physical manifestations of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. Tongues of fire on their heads, the rushing sound of wind. You've seen that the Holy Spirit is here with us. But God doesn't want to just stop with us. Every one of you who is baptized will have the gift of the Holy Spirit in you. That power that Ezekiel says will take out your hard-heartedness, your stone heart, and give you a heart of flesh. 
so that you will obey the commands of the Lord. That's the gift that God has intended for you. This goes on and on and on. It's, it's a touchstone of the rest of the New Testament that God has done something special for his people because of the cleansing power of Jesus Christ. Because, because Jesus has washed you clean of your sins, now you are a worthy vessel to receive God's presence in you. Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You have clothed yourselves in Christ. Can't be more intimate than that with Christ. The Holy Spirit is not some separate God. The Holy Spirit is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit is only one. And so when we understand what we're being told, is that the God that under the law of Moses had to be kept separate from us with veils and sacrifices and blood and priests wants to come and make us his tabernacle, us his temple. That at baptism, that gift is now put into us. We realize just what an amazing thing this is. That I am living now, if I'm a baptized follower of Jesus, I am living now with God in me. Through baptism in Jesus, God in the form of the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. What does that mean for me? It means the more I listen to the Spirit the more power I will have to live righteously. A lot of places we could go to talk about this. Go over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's a mouthful there. One way of understanding why God had to be separate from Israel but can now tabernacle inside of us is Jesus' atoning sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats can't make you clean enough to be that intimate with God. The blood of Jesus can. And God's Spirit's in you. 
There's no more condemnation with the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And you're given the ability to walk by the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, Paul doesn't leave us in the dark. He talks about that a lot in this chapter. I'm going to just look at a couple of verses, a few verses. Those who live according to the flesh, verse 5 says, have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, God's Spirit, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. God's Spirit tabernacling in me gives me power even in the middle of this sinful world. Even in the middle of a world that has shaped me in sinful directions that has hooks in my mind that I haven't even discovered yet to pull me towards sin. God's Spirit pulls me towards Him. A number of reactions that we have when we think about God living intimately with us. Some people greet this news with joy. Say, I need God. I welcome God. I want more God. Let me walk each day by the Spirit. I hope that that's your reaction. Some people greet this with a mixture of fear and joy. I do want more God, but I don't. I'm afraid God is going to intrude kind of like my mother-in-law living in my house or something? Is it going to cramp my style to have God living with me? Is that really something that I want? The part of your mind that is afraid is the very part of your mind that is killing you. Paul says it's death. That's the flesh. And the more you give in to that, the more you're dead. The part of your mind that thinks joyfully about walking by the Spirit is the most alive part of you. We have a song in our songbook that I actually disagree with. It, it's, 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 it's a beautiful song, actually. 
And I kind of know what it's getting at, but I don't think it's right. It's, you know, it's talking about the path of conversion. It says, it was all of self, none of thee, and then gradually it's some of self and some of thee, and then finally at the end it's all, none of self and all of thee. You know, and I, I get it, I understand. But God's plan is actually not that. The only part of you that he wants to kill is the thing that's killing you. You know what I mean? I, he wants you to be absolutely alive, to have an abundant life. And the thing that's blocking your abundant life is the flesh. The part of you that says, I don't want God, I'm scared of God, I'm afraid of God, it's cramping my style. That's the part that is keeping you from being fully alive. best part of you the best parts of you are the parts that the Holy Spirit has already acted on Jesus gives this illustration there's a really simple illustration how many of you On the 4th of July, you're fixing hot dogs for your kids or your grandkids. Think it would be funny, put the hot dog down, and before you put the chili down, instead of a wiener, just put a uh, rattlesnake, then put the chili on. Here you go. Give it to your four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old. How many of you would do that? Okay. <laughs> I didn't mean for anybody to raise their hand. Seriously got a, a, a grief against your brother, apparently. Every one of you who thought that was a horrible idea, are you free to do that? Is anything impinging on your freedom to choose to, to give a snake to your kid or grandkid? No. In fact, if you were the kind of person who would think that would be a good thing to do, there would be part of you that was really, really messed up. Resentment of brothers notwithstanding. That isn't something where you are lacking a freedom. That is something where you have all your freedom. You are be exercising your freedom to be the best you in that zone. Now take that idea that Jesus gives us a very toy example and extrapolate it to all the ways in which the best part of you says this is the way we should be living. That's what the Holy Spirit is calling you to. Not to take away your freedom. I want you to express your freedom. God didn't make you so that he could destroy you and just turn you into his sock puppet or marionette. God made you so that you would learn the joy and 
abundant life of doing the good that he created for you to do. And that you would grow and grow and increase power and strength and intelligence to get better and better at doing the good that God has made for you to do. I dare you. I dare you this week. Pray every day. God, today, let me walk fully by your Spirit. Amen. And then sit back and see what God will do. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have seen fit to grace us with your presence in us through our faith and baptism in Jesus Christ. It's an astonishing truth. And through the eyes of faith, we see it more and more. And God, help us to walk by your Spirit. Day by day, hour by hour, God, let us keep step with your Spirit. Make that power grow in us. Make every other power diminish in us. Make us into your free, loving servants. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you need to respond to the invitation, if you need prayers, you need help of some kind, you want to talk about that publicly, you can come forward and tell us your need. Or if today is the day you want the blessing of baptism, forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, we invite you to come as we stand and let in song.